Well, good morning. You got to love that song, Reckless Love. I mean, think about those verses. There is no shadow he won't light up, no mountain he won't climb up coming after you. Isn't that awesome? I mean, when you think about how good our God is and how great our God, that kind of song kind of warms your soul and makes you realize how precious you are to God, right? I was reminded of that this week. This woman was giving her testimony about on the radio about uh, how God's really spoken to her life. She's a new believer, and uh, she and her daughter, she's a single mom, and her daughter's kind of young. It's really difficult sometimes because she's got to leave her at home when she goes and does some things. And there was this one day where she left her home, and she had to go get some groceries, and then she had to pick up her cleaning. So she went to Walmart, got her groceries, called her daughter to make sure everything was cool, went to the laundry uh, place to pick up her laundry and when she came back out to her car she had locked her keys in her car and she's you know all upset so she calls her daughter and her daughter says hey mom my teacher did the same thing and she used the coat hanger to get into the window and push the button open the door so she said oh I'll give it a try and she never did it before so she pulled out a coat hanger and tried to get it in there and couldn't make it work, and she was frustrated, and, and she called her daughter, and her daughter said, well, we should just pray, right? So she prayed that God would send her somebody to help her, and when a couple of minutes, a guy was walking by, and she said, hey, listen, can you help me? And he says, he says with what? He says, breaking into my car. And, you know, she says, my keys are locked in there, and he says, all right. She says, I got this hanger, and she goes, oh, thank you. You're such a good man. He says, lady, I'm not a good man. I just got out of prison. And within a second, he broke into her car, and she called her daughter to, to uh, say, you know, uh, she's coming home, and her daughter said, we should thank God. And so she, right there, she prayed, and she said, Lord, I want to thank you for helping me by sending me a professional, right? <laughs> Which is kind of good, man. It just sees how, well, I mean, we have a great God, don't we? We have a great God. We serve a great God. And, you know, we're going through this series where we talk about how to be a neighbor, to overcome our prejudices, to understand the vulnerable and the marginalized in life are our neighbors, and to really think about today we're talking about the poor and next week the lonely. And, you know, when we talk about these things, it kind of makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? I mean, as we started to think about it, I started to think about praying, uh, you know, the message this week about the poor. It makes you uncomfortable, Right? And so I think we have to understand that that's part of God's plan for each and every one of us, right? The passage that we looked at, it says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. In other words, let's not just talk the talk. We have to walk the walk. See, love is a verb. It requires action. It's not a feeling. It's not affection. It's an action. And I truly believe you cannot love people unless you know God. Because you know what? The Bible tells us God is love. Without God, how can you love, truly love, and understand what love is? Without God, how can you forgive? How could you you know, be long-suffering with others? How could you be patient? All the things that love is, how can you be those things without God? It's hard. See, because God's not really interested in your comfort. He's interested in your character. God doesn't care what kind of car you drive, and this is convicting for me, He cares how you drive your car. Amen? (laughs) 
He doesn't care how you look. He cares how you look at others. Right? He, when you think about it, he doesn't care how much truth you know. He cares about how much truth you apply. How much of his word do you put into action? His goal, and this is the awesome thing about God, is to meet you where you are and make you a better you for your good and his glory. Amen? I mean, that's how good he is, right? He's willing to see you wherever you're at and to not leave you there, but to make you better for your good and his glory. To me, that's why I love Romans 8, 28, right? God works together in all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, right? He works in all things. Not all things are good, but they're always for our good. That's the God we serve. And here's the key truth, I think, that we find in this message, at least that spoke to me this week, is that we have to understand when we talk about a lot of these things, it pulls us out of our comfort zone. And here's the thing. Growth cannot exist cannot coexist with comfort. You cannot be comfortable growing in Christ, right? It's going to be uncomfortable. You're not going to be able to have both. You're not going to be able to grow and be comfortable because God wants to change you. And change sometimes can be a little difficult and uncomfortable. But that's a good thing when you think about it. It's a key understanding that growth and comfort cannot coexist. And it's important Because at the end of the day, what really matters is where we stand with Christ. Jesus, as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verse 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Because before then, He's doing a lot of work, right? In our lives and in the world. Before him we will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying... Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer him, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See, that's the part of the whole passage. It's why should we care about those who are marginalized, those who are disheartened, those who are discouraged, those that we find in poverty, because you know what? They're close to the heart of God, and when we do so, we do it to who? Him. It's kind of an interesting way of looking at it and our, our cause. See, in America, we, we've kind of got a blurred vision of what poverty really is, right? Most Americans define poverty as a lack of something material, and I know for a lot of you, many of your bank account, as a reminder, you're safe from identity theft, right? <laughs> I was Googling what people say about themselves being poor. Some funny, some funny ones is, we're so poor, we eat cereal with a fork to save milk. It's kind of practical. <laughs> I mean, think about that, really. It's kind of practical. 
to me when I read that, I started thinking, can you eat all cereal with a fork? And I think you can. I think it's true. We're so poor, we opened Gmail just so we could eat the spam. <laughs> We're so poor, we waved around a popsicle and calls it air conditioning. This one I like. It's good, but it's also sad. We're so poor, we walked down the street with one shoe, and people would ask, did you lose a shoe? And we'd say, no, I found one. I think in America, we really don't understand truly what poverty is. There's more wealth in America than nobody in America should be poor, technically, right, or theoretically. You know, every year is, is American tradition as the World Series is. There's another thing that happens every year. The Census Bureau t- tr- uh, con- convenes a conference, and they tried out, they trot out all these statistics, all these beautiful numbers and all these colored charts, and they basically tell everybody what's happening with income in America. And the big point of that um, uh, conference is to, to announce what the poverty line is in America. The poverty line in America is if for a family of four making $25,100 or less. It's about $69 a day when you think about it. And it's kind of an important number for us in, in America because the federal aid programs are indexed at the poverty line. So things like food stamps, child's assistance programs, uh, health, you know, health insurance, for kids, among others, are doled out according to what that number is. And, uh, you know, to me, I think for a family of four, living at $25,100 or less is a pretty tough task in America, is it not? Because that's, that's not take home. That's, that's really probably living at about $17,000 a year. But let's do it in comparison now to the world, right? So we look at the world, extreme poverty, according to most recent estimates, uh, 10%, which is roughly twice the U.S. population, about 700 million people, 10% live in extreme poverty. And the average person in that 700 million, now listen to this, lives on the price of a cup of McDonald's coffee. Not Starbucks, not Dunkin' Donuts, but McDonald's, about $1.90 a day. That's less than $700 a year when you think about it. How that, that's 69 times less, I mean 39 times less than the average, what an average American in poverty is living on. Now the good news is it's less than it was the year before and it's 36% less than it was in 1990. So we're, we're making some progress. But the saddest statistic that I looked at of all was... Um, And this blows my mind. More than 18,000 children under the age of five. I want you to grasp that. 18,000 children, which would be like 200 school buses filled with children driving by here, die every day because of hunger. That's one child every 10 seconds under the age of five, dies because of hunger. Not all of it is um, driven by abject poverty. Some of it's by, uh, I think, orchestrated poverty because you find countries where warlords or tribal chiefs use wealth to control people and 
you know, they don't they have the resources. They're just not getting them to them because it's about control and and being able to manipulate. I saw this one picture. You can show this up there. Is that a picture in that chair? Kind of speaks to the issue in the world, right? On one side, you have this nice plush green golf course, and on the other side, you have these shanty huts that all these people are living in. And I can imagine somebody woke up that morning and went on that golf course. They opened up their refrigerator, got some fresh fruit and some orange juice, put on uh, clothes that just got washed to go golf on, grabbed the water from the water faucet, jumped in their car, made some coffee, drove to the golf course, spent uh, probably a hundred bucks to get a you know play around a golf with a cart, and they're on this golf cart, and right next to them are all these people living in poverty in these tin shacks. They have no refrigerator, no stove, no microwave because they don't have electricity, and they have no running water. Do you realize that 3.5 million people a year die because of water-related sicknesses because they don't have clean water? That most women in third world countries have to walk on average 3.5 miles a day to get fresh water. You know, we live in a world where we wonder why sometimes people hate America because they see the abundance of our wealth. We're like the golf course and the rest of the world is living in these tin shacks. I knew a guy who was a missionary in Mexico and what he would do is say, hey, every time you change your garage door or anybody change their garage door, let me know, send them to me because we make houses out of old garage doors for people. And you know, here's the thing. I want you to understand something. It's, it's really easy to get caught up in this whole thing but, and, and get depressed over it. I don't want you to do that. I just want you to see the heart of God in regards to what we should do as people and as a church in, re, in, in relationship to the poverty that's in the world. Psalm 140 says, I know the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. God cares about the poor. See, to me, I think the poor goes behind the mindset of that which they lack materially because it's, it's really how they think, right, when you think about it. Some are trapped because of shame in their life or lack of education or humiliation or lack of skills or understanding or handicaps, both physical and mental, and they feel trapped. To me, I think other statistics prefer to also factor in access to health care, education, clean water, food, and really think about it. Those are the symptoms of most developing countries. To me, if you go to the World Bank Group in Washington, D.C., when you walk in, they have a, on the, on the walk, when you walk in their lobby on the stone, they have engraved, um, our dream is a world free of poverty. Did you know that was God's design as well? Do you know in Scripture, God said he's got a plan that if we execute it, he says there'll be no poverty, no poor among you, no poor among you. Now, if I ask you that, and we'd get answers like, well, how does, what's God's plan? We'd say generosity, right, being generous. That's one thought. Or we'd say tithe and let the church take care of the poor. It's another thought. Or give above and beyond the tithe of the causes. That would be another thought. But that's not God's plan in Scripture. To find God's plan in Scripture and His design for us, we have to go back to the Old Testament and look at what Moses said to the nation of Israel 
as he's getting ready to release them into the promised land, he's giving them all these words of wisdom. And here's what he says in Deuteronomy 15, verses 4 through 5. But there will be no poor among you. Did you hear that? There will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. Verse 5. If only you strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today. In other words, follow me, no poor. God realized we're all weak human beings. We sin, and sin brings brokenness in the world, which is why when Jesus was on, on earth, he said, hey, the, you know, when they questioned him about taking the perfume that was put over him, sort of this ritualizing you know, and symbolizing his getting ready for burial, and they complained about it, he says, hey, listen, the poor you'll always have among you. Why? Because we live in a sinful, broken society. And I believe all, par- all poverty is related to brokenness. Because you have broken people, you have broken families. You have broken families, you have broken societies. You have broken societies, usually you have broken governments, which we see today, right? And everything's broken. Brokenness drives and creates poverty because we just don't follow God. Why? Because we're all selfish and sinful at our core. That's why Jesus came. When you think about it, cool, interesting scene in Scripture. <clears throat> Jesus walks into to the, to the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, right? And he goes there, and they have a very set schedule of readings in the synagogue every week, right? So it's planned out, you know, years in advance. And Jesus comes in there, and it's his turn to read. And he reads a passage from the prophet Isaiah. And here's what he reads. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Not bring them welfare programs. Not bring them handouts, although he fed them. He says, I proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind and to set liberty upon those who were oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You would think it would be a welcome message. It goes on a little bit later to say, and today, in your presence... This has been fulfilled. Claiming to be the one who comes to do all these things. And he did. And the world was so broken, it says they set out to kill him. Imagine that. Here's somebody that says, hey, I'm coming to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, recover the sight to the blind, set liberty to those who are oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the world says, let's kill him. Let's kill him. Brokenness. To me, I think we have to understand God's heart. When you look at Jesus' message in the synagogue, it offers a stark warning for us today. The Spirit has empowered us to cross cultural barriers, to cross our comfort zones with Jesus' message of the gospel. A message for concern for people. A message of justice, liberation, and salvation. And to do so effectively, however, we must be ready to go beyond our comfort zones, our assumptions, our nation, our culture, to side on whatever God declares important to Him. That's the call of the church. That's why we give to Carmi's children homes. That's why we do the food pantry, right? That's why in our leadership 
meeting yesterday, we said we got to have a we have to have a program for the widows. We got to work on that. Because that's who's close to God's heart, as Pastor Jason said last week, right? The, the orphans and the widows, that's true religion. We should be about that as, as well. To me, we ought to get beyond our ethnic and nationalistic and prejudiced and continue to carry on the message of bringing the good news of the gospel to everyone that's in our circle of influence and beyond. That's the call of the church. Not to talk the talk and talk about it, but somewhere aligned to put those words into actions to impact those that God wants us to reach. To make them a better them for their good and the glory of God. To me, the key to ministering to poor, I think, is is really helping them more than just giving them handouts. It's helping them change not just what they have, but how they think. Because a lot of us, we have stinking thinking, right? Proverbs says, how a man thinketh, so he is. And that's what we should focus on. We have, to just, we have to minister them in a way that changes the way they think. And that's what the gospel does. That's what the gospel is all about. To me, we need to give in a way that helps and not hurts them. I remember some missionaries talking about going to Africa. And when they went there, one of the things they wanted to bring was some shoes because a lot of people don't have shoes. So they brought these kind of flip-flops and they brought them to this village that they were looking to do an orphanage in. And when they got there, they did that. And what ended up happening, they hurt because they put three people out of work who made shoes for people. Right? Thought they were doing a good thing, but yet they hurt. I remember when we, my family, when God was abundantly blessing us, at times we would buy things for Christmas for other people. And sometimes you think you're bringing them to, for the kids, but then how does, what does that do to the parents sometimes that they couldn't provide? I think there's a way to do things, right? God calls us when we tithe, bring the tithe into the storehouse. In the Old Testament, that's the passage here, the storehouse being the synagogue, because when people came to meet their needs from what they didn't have, they always gave credit to God because it came from, from God's house. That's the whole point of us giving. We give to the church so that the church can go out and do the work of God and people can thank God for what the church does. See, it pales in comparison when you look at America. It's a, it might be a little controversial, but that's okay. In, in America, uh, prior to World War II, all the social services, orphanages, almost all the hospitals, a lot of the schools... And almost all the soup kitchens and all that stuff was run by the church in America. Very few government supporting agencies, right? But right before World War II, the average American only paid 3% in income tax. When FDR came in, he changed a lot of things, and within one year it went from 3% up to 20-something percent is the average index, right? Seven times what the average American was paying because... The government was going to take on all these social services to help all those in need at the time. And we've never looked back. And if you look at the impact of the church in terms of social services since 1940 to today, it's been a steady decline in terms of what we do as a church. Part of it is because giving's gone down. The average American only gives about 2.8% of, of charitable giving in America. And so that would include us, right? And so what happens is we pay so much in taxes people are finding less and less opportunity to give, which, I don't know, it should be that way. 
But the church is the voice of God. And what, what the church calls us, though I love what Billy Graham said, he said, when we are rich in things that perish, but poor in things of the Spirit. We are rich in gadgets, but poor in faith. We are rich in goods, but poor in grace. We are rich in know-how, but poor in character. We are rich in words, but we're poor in deeds. Jesus said that our life does not consist in the material possessions we have. Our peace of mind, our joy, our happiness, our comfort, our eternal destiny does not depend on our earthly possessions. It depends on Christ. Isn't that awesome? All the things we think we have and we think we need mean nothing in the scope of eternity. The only thing that matters is Jesus Christ. It's interesting because we are called to serve the poor because God has a heart for them. Key understanding here, we're called to serve others and not save others. Think about it. We are not someone's answer. Jesus is their answer. We are not someone's savior because only Jesus can save Jesus is the power. We are the can do it. Jesus is the truth. We're just the messengers. Jesus saves. We as a church need to serve, right? Serve others. That's how Jesus reaches this world, through his truth, church and through his, through his truth. How does Jesus want us to serve? I think this is difficult for a lot of people. And because a lot of times you get... The minute you're walking somewhere in a big city, we just went to Seattle, me and my wife and my daughter, and I was just overwhelmed by the homeless population there. And, you know, it's hard when, some, when you're walking down the street and somebody's asking for something, right? It's hard. You know, what do you do? And so um, Robert, I was helping Robert DeCrescentis fix his car, and we had to go to Walmart last week. And we went to Walmart. Uh, I said, hey, let's go get a sandwich while we wait. To, we're going to have to bleed his radiator. And so we got our sandwich. And... Uh, um, um, we came out there and we're working on his radiator and this guy comes by and he's asking for money. He says he's in a hotel down the street with his family and they you know, just have enough money for the hotel and no food. And so we were right in the middle of doing this and you know, sometimes what goes through your mind when that happens, right? Is this guy going to take the money and use it for drinking? What's, you, know, you never know, right? It's, we live in a world that, I hate to say it, but you've got to be a little bit cynical, a little bit understanding because you want to be a good steward. So I looked at him, and I was looking at Robert. I said, I'll tell you what, we're, we're in the middle of doing this. Can you wait a little while, and we'll take you over to Walmart, and we'll get you some groceries. And he said, okay, and I'm going to wait inside there because it's warm, right? So we were probably working on the car for about 10 minutes, and it started to snow slash little drizzle. Remember last Saturday, right? And so he comes out, and he goes, you know, I, I, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to get going because I don't want to be caught in the rain. And I said, hey, listen, just go to Walmart. And wait inside there, and we'll be there in a few minutes, right? It's not a big deal. And so he decided to leave and go, right? And so when we look at situations, how do we have that discernment? I think discernment comes in. How do we serve? I think Jesus wants us to serve to do, accomplish two things. He wants us to provide relief, but he also wants us to provide re- uh, restoration, Relief is defined as immediate temporary relief during and after a crisis, right? So Hurricane Michael just wiped out Florida. All those people needed water, they needed shelter, they needed food, they needed something. And the church should step in and provide those things, those immediate need to get relief. But once the cameras leave and all the government agencies leave and everything else, they still need help. They need restoration. 
They need to get their lives back together. And that's where the church should step in and do whatever it can to minister to those communities that they're in. It happens to everybody. Somebody has a, a medical issue, and the next thing you know, they're financially destitute. That's what causes most bankruptcies in America is medical issues, right? And I think, you know, we, we don't understand that accidents and just health issues. We need to be able to provide temporary relief, but also some way as a church to help people restore their lives. We're not here to do a Band-Aid thing. That's what the, I love about the Good Samaritan story last week. He did both. He immediately made relief by getting him out of the ground and taking him to a place and setting him up. And then he went on a trip. When he came back, he brought other things that helped him get and restore his life to go back to where he was. That's the picture. That's why I love when we think about things. As a church, sometimes you don't know who to trust or what to do or how to do things. That's why we look at other people that do it really well and jump on where they're doing, like Carmine, right? They do a really good job of ministering to orphans and families in crisis. Same thing with Safe Families. It's a great organization to get involved with to help families. Relief and restoration. To me, I think that we have to realize that we have to learn how to relate to people and not rescue people. Because people want relationships. That's what drives them. Those who are struggling are not projects you help. They are people you love. Right? I, didn't, I never want God to look at me as a project. I want him to look at me as someone he loves. And that's why he's going to light every shadow and climb every mountain coming after me. Amen? To me, I think that when you help, you have to decide to never do what somebody can do for themselves. That's really important. The way we do relief and restoration is not to do what other people can do for themselves, but to fill those gaps, to help them get to a better place, to feel the love of God. To me, we got to learn to reach out and not reach down. We reach because we care, and we need to look and find partners to help people because there's some things we're just not equipped to do. I'm not equipped to do. I don't know if the church is equipped to do. I'll give you a great example. There are people in this country that struggle with drugs. They get hooked on opioids and other things, and they're finding themselves in real bad situations, in real bad places. And sometimes they come to the church, they've come to me, and the first thing I do is say, hey, look, you need to get them down to Pacific Garden Mission or Teen Challenge because they know how to help these people. I don't. And so sometimes it's just getting people to the right places, right? That's how we reach out and not reach down. We want to help them go from where they're at to where God wants them to be, and that's putting them in a place where God's truth is ministering to them and really impacting their lives. I love what uh, Matthew 22 says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and on these two commandments, the law depends all the law of the prophets. To me, when we love someone like we love ourselves, wouldn't we want somebody to do that to us? Take me where they find me and help me get to a better place to be a better me for my good and God's glory. That's the call of all of us. It's not just throwing money into the plate. It's doing something that goes beyond that so we really minister to people. Yeah, you might have to do that sometimes. You may have to give above and beyond your tithe to help someone. That's why we have a benevolence fund in the church, right? You can give to that fund, and when people have a need, we have some money set aside to help them to provide relief and then be able to get to know them in a way and create a relationship so we can help restore them and move them in a better place. To me, here's why it's important. Here's why it's really important. And here's why we should be thankful and grateful that we can participate in God's plan to minister to the poor, right? 
Proverbs 19, verse 17. I all want you to listen to this really good. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Isn't that cool? When you're giving to the poor, you're not giving to the poor. You're giving to the Lord. It's not about what they do with it. It's about what you do with God has given you. Right? That's when it comes to tithing. It's not what the church does. You're, you're responsible for giving. The church is responsible for being a good steward. And it should be. But we're responsible to give. Because when we give, we lend to the Lord. And here's the best part of that verse. And this should encourage you today. And this should give you to walk away with a strong heart and a strong desire to help other people. Because it says, and he will repay him for his deed. So you're giving to the Lord, and then he repays you for doing that. It may not come right away. It may not be, in, uh, you know, you give a 10, he's going to give you a 10. Don't listen to any preacher that says, you give me 10, I'll, God's going to give you a 1,000. That's not how it works. But your shoes may last a few months longer than they should. Your food may last longer than it should. Your milk will last longer if you use the fork. I don't know how God does it, but you know what? It's precious to him, and they are precious to him. So precious that he says, when you do it, I'm going to repay you. So why be uncomfortable when you think about it? Why should I feel uncomfortable of giving something that God's so abundantly given to me? Because he's just going to give it back somehow, someday, some way. And we can trust him for that. Because why? He is a good, good father. We sing about that all the time. We just got to take it to heart and recognize it's true and stop just singing about it and talking about it and actually putting it into practice and obeying what God has for us and seeing the impact around the world. That's what the early church did. If you read an account from history, it says this, in world lacking social services, Christians were their brother's keeper. At the end of the second century, A.D. Tertullian, who was one of the great saints, said, wrote that while pagans temples spent their donations, they got donations, right? They spent their donations on feasts and drinking bouts. Christians spent theirs to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls, destitute of means of parents, and of old persons confined to the house. These claims concerning Christian charity were confirmed by pagans as well. The pagan emperor Julian, in a very derogatory comment, sent the impious Galileans, talking about the Christians in Galatia, support not only their poor, but they support ours as well. What a testimony. What a testimony of history. The early church's greatest impact was taking a heart for the things that God had a heart for, which was the poor. And history records it as a great, great testimony. To me, I think that we've got to recognize, we've got to call. I always look at it like this, and I'm going to close with this. My daughter, when she was younger, and I can say this because she's not in here right now. Like all little girls, she had a little kitchen set with all these little glasses and all this little plastic food, right? And every once in a while, we'd sit in there, and I'd sit in there, and we'd talk, and and I remember one time my wife, she was going to have tea, and, you know, they were having fun, and Sue thought, you know, it's probably a good time for me to make sure she understands what's going to happen with her heart surgery. She was getting ready to go for heart surgery, and one time Sue said to her, so is there drinking tea? She says, well, how would you, well, how do you feel about your surgery uh, coming up? And she goes, Mom, this is pretend, right? We don't ask us to talk about anything serious. 
But I remember one time I was in there, she came and she brought me some tea, a little water and a little tea thing, and then she brought me the plastic donuts and the plastic fruit, and I'd bite the donut and I'd smile, and she'd keep bringing me different things because she thought I was having fun and, and happy that she was bringing me things that were of no value to me. None. And then when I'd smile, she'd bring me more. When I'd drink the water, she'd give me more. None of that stuff I needed, but it made her happy. It made her smile. It made her feel valued. That's how it is when we go to God. Everything we can give him, he doesn't need. It's like those plastic things my daughter was giving me. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need us. But you know what? He smiles on us. And he blesses us when we do the things he's called us to do. He, he blesses us. It, it, it's mind-boggling. I mean, when you start to think about how good he is, the Bible says that, you know, we're saved by faith. You know, we're saved by faith through grace, not by works so that no man can boast. But the next verse we always leave off, which is 10, which it says, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he's prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, God's prepared these works for us to do. It's him doing it through us, so we can't take credit for it, but he's still doing it. He's using us, he's blessing us, and he wants to do the same for us right now. Can you imagine the impact we have? That's why I love the food pantry ministry. I know I'm not here all the time for that. Uh, but I know there's people that faithfully serve families who are in need. That's relief. And there's some of those families that end up coming here and getting other services, and that's restoration. And that's what we need to be about. Can we do more? Yes. Should we do more? Yes. Will we do more? I hope so. I hope so. We spent a whole day as a leadership just planning out a strategic plan for how we can better and more effectively minister to the communities we serve and to get the gospel to those in need. It was a good day spent doing that. Let me tell you something. I think that God has a heart for the marginalized. God has a heart for the vulnerable. God has a heart for those who are poor. And God's heart should be our heart, right? Amen? We should be wanting to serve him and do what he's called us to do. And that's what this whole series is about. Calling the church to action on behalf of others for the glory of Christ. Amen? That's how we should look at it. And what a privilege. What a privilege it is to be able to do that. Because we know in the end, whatever we do, we're actually doing it for Christ. And guess what? He'll repay us. We don't do it for that. But it's a heck of a motivation, isn't it? We should do it out of the gratitude of all he did for us, all he gave us, shedding his blood on the cross, dying for our sins so that we can have a relationship. Because you know what? At the end of the day, the Bible says life is but a breath. It's fleeting. It's momentary. And then there's eternity, which is forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Which one do you want God to be more focused on? To me, it's the eternal picture. And so should we. What we give up in this life is meaningless in comparison to the eternal riches that we have in the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen? And that should be the call for all of us in the church. It starts with knowing Him. If you've never known Jesus, if you've come today and you've never asked Jesus to come and forgive you for your sin, we're all sinners. Every single person here is a sinner. Every person in here is a hypocrite at some point in time in their life. We're all people. We're all broken because we sin. 
And in order for us to have eternal life, we need somebody to take that sin away. And the Bible says there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Jesus came, gave his life, a perfect sacrifice on the cross at Calvary for all our sin. And in doing so, he made a way. That's why he says, I am the only way. Because he's the only one that made a way through his sacrifice on the cross so that we can have a relationship with the Father forever. If you've never accepted that and trusted in that for your eternal life, I'm going to invite you today to do that as we get ready to start singing. Because we don't want anybody to leave here without knowing Jesus and trusting him for the rest of their life. Amen? Because really, without Christ, you are poor. And most people don't know how destitute they are because they don't have Jesus. That should be the call of the church, the cry of the church, the work of the church, the action of the church, the heart pulse of the church. And then for all of us that know Jesus, but maybe haven't been as sensitive to the call of the poor here in our community, here in our nation, and across the world, man, there are a lot of places to give. We as an organization think about, as a, as a church, how do we steward that money to help those? There are places that do it really well. You know, I know a lot of people do Compassion International to reach kids. I know there's people do Operation Blessings. that I love what they do because they go into a place, and not only do they provide relief, but they do provide restoration. They provide jobs. They buy people you know, sewing machines, and they put water in there, and they buy them things that they can make businesses on, so they just don't leave them with a quick fix. They leave them with something that can sustain them in long term. Awesome. There's a lot of places out there, but it starts with what we do in here. Amen? Father in heaven, we just thank you for today. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your heart for those in need. Lord, all of us were in need at one time, in need of knowing your Savior, desperate need. And Lord, we just ask this morning that you speak to someone's heart. And if you do so, Lord, as we start to sing, that we just come down and kneel this morning and just give you thanks for the truth that was revealed to them today. And for all of us who are here, Lord, who just maybe haven't been as sensitive to the poor, I'd ask, Lord, that they too, as soon as the music starts, just come down and give, come before you, Lord, and just Lord, lay their heart before you to say, Lord, use me, make me uncomfortable so that I can grow and be a better me for my good and your glory. And Lord, we just thank you that you're a God that's always looking to make us better, to make us look more like your son Jesus in a world that desperately needs to see the light of his love, to know that there's a God that will light every shadow and climb every mountain, and Lord, just to reach us with the love of your son Jesus. Lord, may today be a day that uplifting, not depression, not depressing. It is depressing, but at the same time, we should have hope that you have a heart for those in poverty. Help us to have that same heart. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.